Okay, well, Hare Krishna to all the devotees that are on the call, and um, I'm sure we'll get a few more coming on, and, and all the devotees that are going to be listening. Um, we are doing the, the um, series of the, the beauty and the messiness of the Sadaka's journey, and today we have a very special guest who has been a dear friend of mine for many, many years, and um, I'm very grateful that she agreed to come on because I know it's challenging, challenging sometimes for her to do interviews. So this is Pranada. Um, I'm going to, many of you know her um, from the Sangha, but um, some of you may not. And um, after this interview, I think you'll have a lot more acquaintance with her and probably want to go out and get her a new book, which uh, we'll, we'll talk about as we go along in the interview. So I'm going to read your bio. So Nanga Banjari says that she can't record yet. Oh. I don't know, but this setup of the translation. Oh, this translation got got stopped. That's very strange. Let me get you back on here. I wonder why that happened. Okay, you back yeah. on there. Um, so now you should have the have both of them. Is that good? Okay, great. Good. Okay, so um, I'm going to read Pranada's bio. Um, so she joined in Los Angeles Temple to serve Prabhupada at the age of 17. And that was back in um, 1975. And she was accepted as Shil Prabhupada's disciple in 1976. Um, she distributed Shil Prabhupada's books in Los Angeles airport for many years. Um, and she served the, and served the Back to Godhead magazine in various roles for 30 years and served the BBT, the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust, in various ways for nearly 10 years. Um, she <clears throat> was a board member of ISKCON Foundation, um, Gita Nagari Press, the Alachua Temple, BTG, the Alachua Learning Center, um, and in her spare time, well, you can really can ask her what she was doing. <laughs> um, and in her service at Gitanagari Press, she was honored to be able to produce the last two volumes of Srila Prabhupada Lilamrita for the BBT. So some pretty significant services that she's done in her past um, years. Um, beginning in 1990, she published, edited, and financed the international quarterly newsletter called Priti Lakshanam. And that was a little um, newsletter to educate devotees about the role of women in ISKCON and provide an avenue for devotees to communicate with the leadership around topics of concern. 
Um, and in publishing that newsletter, she encountered many social needs within the international devotee community. <clears throat> and in response, she began publishing personal ads to facilitate devotees finding marriage partners. She founded Adopt a Child that served to place devotee children from disadvantaged families into devotee homes who could care for them. And with another devotee, Sudharma Devi Dasi, she helped establish the ISKCON Women's Ministry, now known as the Vaishnav Ministry. And then in 1993, she was elected as the Krishna Community Fund president with the specific duty to head up an effort to build a new temple. To spearhead this, she brought together a team of devotees. A fundraising campaign began in November of 1993 and building <clears throat> plans were finalized and architect approved them and a contractor was chosen. They opened the doors mid-morning on John Mastami Day in 1996. So very beautiful temple in Alachua. Um, and Pranada was very instrumental in making that happen. Um, she worked with Tamara, Parni, uh, Manuram, and Radha <clears throat> to launch Krishna.com in 2000. So Krishna.com is a, um, you know, very, it had, back in, at one time, it was like the place to go for information about Krishna consciousness. That was a very, there wasn't, that was before social media, so many different social media platforms, and um, <clears throat> a lot of blogging was happening on there, and um, a lot of articles and, and things about Krishna consciousness for, for newcomers and for devotees. And then in 2002, she became the co-director of the BBT Special Projects, which was formed in response to the preaching strategy she presented to the BBT trustees called the Bhakti Campaign. Wow, she's done so much. Okay, in 2020. It's going on a long time. I'm like, I'm like, just like, it's just, I mean, I've known her and I knew she did all these things, but to see them all on a piece of paper and read them, it's pretty <laughs> over amount. It's just amazing. So then in 2020, she published the an anthology of 30 writers entitled The Emergence of Women's Voices in ISKCON which is a written documentary of the experiences of first-generation pioneer women of ISKCON. She had a private library of these documents, likely the only complete one in the world. She sensed it was time to pass the torch of wisdom and lessons learned to future generations, knowing that they would benefit from senior Vaishnavs who have thought deeply on the topics of women's service in the institution. To have the facility to offer these volunteer services as an entrepreneur, she managed two successful businesses to support her family. 
She now spends her time deepening, deepening her sadhana and writing for an outside audience. In 2018, she released her first book, Wise Love, Bhakti, and the Search for the Soul of Consciousness, which won several awards and was republished by the BBT South Africa. Her second book, Bhakti Shakti, Goddess of Divine Love, was just released on the first full moon day of this year. And she's working on two other books. So just put that up there just so you can see this is uh, the beautiful book that she just released, Bhakti Shakti. Um, and that is on Amazon. And um, I'm sure it will be translated into Spanish very soon. Like it has been translated into oh, Spanish. Oh, it's already spent already. It's, okay. And it's been proofread and it's in layout right now. Wonderful. So see, she's ahead of the game. <laughs> uh, not me. <laughs> the devotees who are kindly interested in giving their time. So um, Pranada met um, uh, Tripuri Swami in 2013 at Archana City's house in Prabhupada Village and um, developed a very um, wonderful shiksha relationship with him over the years. And he also was a lot of her inspiration to help her kind of launch her into her writing of these, um, these books. So, yeah, amazing. I should have gone with a short bio, I think. I don't know. I think it's important because I would say, I, you know, I've, I, I know a lot of devotees and I, a lot of very amazing devotees who have done amazing things, but Pranada just stands out as somebody that puts her mind to something and she is able to accomplish it. It doesn't matter if she doesn't know how to write a book. <laughs> she, she, she decided she wanted there to be bridge books and she tried to form form a group of you know find people to do that and she couldn't find them so what did she do she taught herself how to write and then not only did she teach herself how to write but she also taught herself how to do all the the things that you have to do to market a book and and building a website I mean it's just incredible nothing stops her and in reading her you know the bio we read you can see she's a very accomplished devotee um, has done so many things um, to help the Vaishnav community and of course you know her involvement in ISKCON she's also very involved in Sri, Sri Chaitanya Sangha as well now and she has um, just really I would say made it a better place for women in, in, the, in, the, in the movements um, and for the future to come also. Um, so I'm very grateful for all the work you've done and all the things you've, you know, helping to build the temple here in Alachua. I mean, that's amazing, so many amazing things you've done. So I wanna start up with questions for you as to kind of going back to your, your early life um, and you're starting your journey. Um, did you have any 
cues in your life that would help you understand that you were meant for a spiritual path? Yeah, yeah. really young. Yeah, um, I uh, was, I became clear at around, in fact, I was thinking about this also. When I was around eight years old, I saw a TV program. We had just got a color TV. That was something new. And um, I think it was a Sunday, I'm not sure, but there was a program and I was by myself watching this program and it said, it had these old manuscripts on some kind of a beautiful cloth and there was a hand turning the manuscripts and the narrator said, these precious books of wisdom are being lost to the world and the language that they're in, few people know and those who know are dying and we're, we could lose this, this body of knowledge. And I turned the TV off and I sat there and I was really like very disturbed. <laughs> I was really worried. And I thought, how could adults let this happen? That something as precious as spiritual knowledge could be lost to human society. And for some reason, this impacted me so deeply that I became obsessed. <laughs> I think this is like a character trait that gets me to do these things is a little obsession, which is actually a negative, can be quite a negative, something I've had to work on as a devotee. But um, I became absolutely distraught with this, this thought. And I didn't tell anybody, but I felt like I was desperate for that not to happen. And I began to pray in a very um, almost frantic way. Please show me these books of knowledge. Show me the absolute truth. And I felt very lost and very worried that this was never going to happen in my life. And I was about eight or nine years old, but I was very, very disturbed. And uh, I, in, in hindsight, what's really interesting is I looked at the calendar when this, this occurred in my life and Srila Prabhupada made his journey to San Francisco, his first journey on an airplane to San Francisco right at that time. And I was born in San Francisco and was in Marin County in my childhood home. So that means my spiritual master was coming. Uh, there was, there was, I didn't know it and I'm a child, but I feel like my spirit, there, my, my trajectory to come in touch with my spiritual master had begun and it was uh, it was almost like his his coming was impressing on me and then this prayer overtook me and this prayer became so powerful that um after some time i mean i really i stopped playing jacks and jump rope and child games i just became obsessed how am i going to get this knowledge and i remember 
my parents had this small little Bible in the, in the living room where we never went. And it was very hard. And I remember trying to read it, not making any sense out of it at all. And I had this idea that I needed to find the absolute truth, which I have no idea where I even heard that term because I was in Catholic school. And, you know, we were, you know, normal, quote, normal Americans. But I was looking for the absolute truth and I became so frantic about needing to find the absolute truth that I, I finally began my prayer by saying, I knew I, I, I needed, maybe if I made a commitment that then the answers would come and the books of knowledge would be revealed to me. So then my prayer morphed into, if you just send me the books of the absolute truth, I will do anything. <laughs> And it took me a few years to go there because I had a sense that that meant some kind of surrender that was going to be big. <laughs> so I was hesitant to make that, uh, add that to the prayer. But anyway, it was added to the prayer. And by the time I was say 12, um, I was quite beside myself. I still hadn't heard answers. The counterculture movement was at its height. I was um, very interested in adult conversations. I was, that's where I would spend my time. My parents would have these two hippies over in the evening and I would just hang out and listen to their conversations about everything going on in the world. And uh, very early on, I realized politics were awful because I saw John F. Kennedy murdered. I saw Bobby Kennedy murdered. I saw um, Martin Luther King murdered and the war in Vietnam was going on and it was very uh, disturbing. I knew that there were no answers there. And um, so I was listening to these adult conversations and um, feeling like maybe I was getting closer to the truth, but they weren't really going. I, I felt like I was being educated, but not fully. And then I started listening to the music of the time. And then I was really like, yeah, it's speaking. There's some, there's some message here and it's speaking to me, but still not feeling that wholeness. And, and then the evening conversations with the adults stopped. And so I went to my father when I was, at this time, I was 13. And I said, could we, could we, um, could we read spiritual books at night when you got home from work and we could go on a journey together? <laughs> and my father said, sure, we could do that. So we started reading everything that was out and about at that time. We read about Zen Buddhism, Be Here Now, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, and we read the Bible. And my favorite was Girdef and Ospensky. I felt like I was getting close to the truth with, with these two um, spiritual teachers. But I felt frustrated because the knowledge seemed right, but there wasn't a path. And so how do you, how do you take that knowledge on? I felt that was lacking. So I started making trips um, to, into San Francisco by myself, which was quite a long journey. I'd have to take a bus into, um, Larks into the Larkspur Harbor, take a boat into Sausalito or San Francisco, then Sausalito to San Francisco, take a bus in San Francisco. And I visited the Zen Buddhism 
center in San Francisco that had just opened. And, you know, here I am, 13-year-old girl alone doing meditation, Zen meditation. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, and the teacher would walk around with this thing and hit, <laughs> hit students to wake up because they were sleeping. And uh, I listened to some classes. I think like some of the big teachers were there at the time. And um, I went a second time thinking that I just needed to learn more. But I, I really felt like they were talking about the mind, but the mind wasn't every, it seemed to me that that wasn't everything. So I remember my mother's girlfriend who was younger than her took me to um, a, a, the Jack Hart Hotel, Jack Tar Hotel in San Francisco for a seminar by uh, Werner Earhart, who is the founder of EST, and which later became Landmark. And he was speaking, there were about 250 adults, and he was explaining how he had had this awakening on the Golden Gate Bridge, and he was going to be teaching people about it, and it was only going to be about this much money. And the, the audience was just, you know, thunderous and applause. And I was looking around and thinking, what are they applauding? Everything he's talking about, I've already heard, and it's not, it's not revelatory. And it seemed to me that the, the, these adults were being taken in by this that wasn't fully. So I was really like, oh, and my prayer was getting more and more intense and I was not making progress. I was just- You were just very, was, very precocious. <laughs> oh my God. I was beside myself. <laughs> so then I decided that I was gonna go get um, the autobiography of a yogi for my father's birthday, which would have been his 34th birthday. I was turning 14. So he was just, you know, 20 years older than me. So he was for his 34th birthday. I decided I was going to go into Sausalito to the Tides bookstore and buy him autobiography of Yogi. I wanted to get the hardbound version because it was all the rage. Everyone was talking about this book. So I went into to took the took the bus and the, the the boat into Sausalito to the Tides bookstore. And I went and right up right up to the book and I grabbed the book. And then I was like, something caught my eye down below the shelf, all the way on the floor. And I looked and I was like, there were and I realized, oh my God, I'm, this is the first time I'm in a bookstore. And I was so taken by the books, I thought, well, maybe I should really find out what else is in the bookstore, because I was looking for the, the books of the absolute truth. So I started looking around, and I was like, no, you know, and I grabbed the autobiography of Yogi again, and again, I looked down, and I was like, what is that? And I picked up these two little books, and I turned them over, and there was this picture of this person from India who looked very saintly, and the first book was called beyond birth and death. And the second was called uh, other um, journey to other planets. And I looked at those two books, and I thought they were really calling me. And I, 
but I was here to buy autobiography of a yogi. So I set them down and I said, no, I'm buying autobiography of a yogi. So I grabbed the book again and I turned to walk to check out. And I was like, no, I, I can't do this. This is, even though this was a hardbound book, it was the book I came for. Everyone was talking about it. I couldn't do it. I came back and I put the book down and I picked up the two little books again. And I was just like, I don't know. I don't know. And, and then I finally just had to shut my mind off. And I said, okay, I'm getting these two books. So I took these two little books to the, to the checkout and I bought these two little books and I went home and I wrapped them up and my father opened them up and his face just dropped. And he just went, oh, and he looked at the other one. He went, oh, and he put them down. And I was just devastated. I was like, oh, I got the wrong books. And my father doesn't approve. And it, that was very meaningful for me to have him approve. And uh, I was so disappointed in myself that we didn't read those books. We never picked up those books. Then my father became very restless and he, my parents became like hippies. And um, a couple years later, they, they announced that we were selling everything. We were going to buy a Jeep and a trailer and we were going to travel to Honduras and start a scuba diving business. And we were leaving everything behind. And I was not finished even with the 10th grade at that time. And I was not happy because I wanted to finish school. And I was like, I do not want to go on this trip, but I felt obliged to go with my mother for different reasons on this trip, which turned out to be a very, and my father, my father was very much into um, the books of, um, oh, Carlos Castanadas. And he, he just thought that those were the books those that was the truth and so we were going to go by by a vehicle down into mexico travel into south america meet one of his friends in honduras and start a scuba diving business and he was sure we were going to meet some shamans we were going to take some mushrooms and have revelations and <laughs> find the truth and i was like okay maybe but i'm not really happy about this <laughs> So um, we take off and um, my father had a problem with alcohol and drugs and he wound up leaving us down there for some time. And while he was gone, there was a major um, hurricane which wiped out Honduras. And so we were no longer going, to, we were in Mexico at the time and we were no longer going to Honduras because it was completely devastated by this hurricane. Then he, he landed and he said, well, we're going to go to Santo Domingo and do the business. So we went to the end of Mexico. By this time, um, you know, we had just some few belongings, but now we were going to sell the trailer and the Jeep in Mexico and take a plane to Santo Domingo with just like maybe a suitcase, each of us. And that was it. So we go to Santo Domingo. That turned out to be quite an adventure. I learned scuba diving, I taught scuba diving, I took out scuba diver, you know, tourists on scuba dives. 
And, uh, but I was just beside myself, nothing, you know, the spiritual thing didn't happen in Mexico. And now I'm almost 16, 16 years old. My life is going by. I don't have the books of the absolute truth and everything is ruined. <laughs> and I was just, I was actually getting suicidal. I could not imagine living without being um, given the gift of spiritual knowledge. So um, we were there for a while. It was not working out well and uh, for the family, financially and otherwise. And um, I remember at one point, um, they, my father and mother said, well, let's invite your sister who had stayed, my sister had stayed back in California. Let's invite her for her birthday. We'll have a party. So she, she came and she came with two boxes, two, you know, like boxes. That, and I, evidently we had saved those boxes. I had no idea that anything was left in California, but there were two boxes and she brought them. So I sat down and I opened up these boxes just to see what it was. And I thought it was just gonna be a, you know, whatever. And oh my God, I pulled out Beyond Birth and Death, oh an easy journey to other planets. And I took them like this and I grabbed them and I said, oh my God, they followed me all over the world and they're here and I must take them now. And wow. so I didn't show them to anybody. I, I hid them and I took them into my room. <laughs> And uh, I then then within a few days, I sat down with them and I was like, something is something is happening here. But I was having a hard time understanding the Sanskrit and everything that was being said. And it, it just wasn't completely gelling. So then I said, and plus, I, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm 16. I don't even have an education. I'm trying to read these profound books. And um, I decided I'll pull out a, I, I'll, I would look every word up in the glossary and I was going to pull out a dictionary and look up every word as I read them. And so the second time I sat down to read them like that, and oh my God, everything shifted in that day. The whole world just collapsed in a very profound way. I wasn't the daughter of my mother and father. I wasn't the sister of my brothers. I was a spiritual being who, and this world was an illusion. And I just was introduced to, to the Supreme Personality of Godhead and everything just shifted so profoundly. Tears were coming down my eyes. And I thought, oh my God, that, You've answered my prayer. You've answered my prayer. I found the truth. I found my path. I found my master. And it was very, it was a very profound experience. And um, that's how Prabhupada came for me this, the second time. This time he was coming with more, with more force to pull me. And um, of course, I remembered that I had that I had added to my prayer that if I found the absolute truth, I would surrender everything. So I was like, oh no, now what have I gotten myself into? What do I have to do now? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and that was that was a heavy moment because 
I felt that honesty was very important and I could not betray that promise that I had made and the gift had been given. And so um, long story, we made it back into California a few months later and I visited the, um, when we were in the airport, Kanchambala, whose husband Madhusudana just passed away. She gave me a mantra card with the address of the ISKCON temple in uh, Los Angeles. So I went to the temple and um, went to the Sunday feast, um, picked up a Bhagavad Gita at the, the, at the gift store and felt um, like more and more connected to the path but really like terrified to surrender. And I remember um, I had, um, we were leaving the temple and Rameshwar came up to us. He was a brahmachari at the time. And he started speaking to me. And then pretty soon a lot of devotees were gathered around me listening to his preaching. And he was just going on about how we, there's a path and there's, you know, he was teaching me a lot and he would, but he was also demanding surrender. And he's like, why don't you stay? And I was like, oh God, no. <clears throat> anyway, then I went home and the whole time going home, I was crying because I knew I was going to have to surrender. This was it. And about two weeks later, I moved into the Los Angeles temple. So that's how, um, Prabhupada saved me and, um, and gave me hope and a chance. Such an amazing story that you have. She also has this all written in her memoir that um, she wrote some years ago. And we're hoping that we might be able to get her to put that out for publication in the near future. We'll talk more about that. Um, yeah, so beautiful story of how you came to Krishna and um, obviously picking up where you left off from your previous lifetime, no doubt, with that early prayer of yours and that intense desire really just welling up inside of you to find the, the absolute truth, whatever that meant to you. <laughs> yeah, and then Prabhupada's books had that term in it, and then I knew you know, because right. he right. uses the term uses absolute term. truth. Absolutely. And I had never heard that phrase before. Right. So it was, it just had come to me. So I was like, there, another yeah. confirmation. Yeah, another confirmation. Yeah. And I know when you first saw Prabhupada, your experience was meeting an old friend, seeing him and connecting. That was, that was, that really solidified it. And it really has been a, um, uh, it really has um, kept me on the course through like a lot of difficulties is that being in Prabhupada's presence and um, being completely transported to another realm, just being in the same room as, as him and, and um, having a tangible experience of the spiritual realm by being be, you know, hearing, hearing someone 
on a tape is different than hearing them in person. There's a, there's a different kind of transmission that affects the heart. And I, I think you can get as much, I, I do think, but it's a different experience and it's a very profound one to sit in the presence of a realized soul that is transporting you. And then he, um, by chance, I was, he was, well, I, <laughs> yeah, there's a funny story I can tell you, but I'll, the, before I tell you the funny story, I will say that um, he would go out on a morning walk every morning before greeting of the deities. And he would come down from his rooms. And so we, there would be a little band of us standing on the cement platform on the side of the temple that where he would come down then he would get into his car and he'd go out for his walk. And so we would, we would wait at the bottom of the stairs and usually just a few women and give him some flowers, pay obeisances, see him up close. And um, one day I decided that it was such a beautiful scene. I wanted to see it from a little bit of a distance. So I went, instead of standing right where he came down, I went to the other side of the car and there was a little little doorway to the other building right there. And there was only one person could stand there. And I thought I was hidden, actually. I thought I was hidden. And I was just taking in this beautiful scene of Prabhupada acknowledging the different devotees there and accepting their little offerings. And it was just so beautiful and so much love. And I, I just was in heaven watching this. And then Prabhupada got in the car and all of a sudden, I realized he was looking at me and I thought I was hiding. And I was, you know, worried, like, oh my God, I've made myself visible and, and that's awkward. And, but Prabhupada looked me right in the eye and he held my eyes. And I was just stunned because I felt like we were having a conversation with our eyes and I didn't know how to respond and I wanted to respond. And I was quickly trying to think, how am I supposed to respond and what is being, and I all it just, and this was all very much of a flash where I saw, I saw the, I saw eternity, like how everything goes for eternity. And in that exact moment where that was transmitted, it was also that he was my friend. And I thought that doesn't make any sense. I, I, he doesn't know me and I'm trying to be a disciple and how could we be friends? <laughs> but it was such, such a powerful feeling that uh, I was showing that we were friends and going to be friends in eternity. I was like overwhelmed and I, and I felt, okay, how, what am I going to communicate with my eyes? And I, I communicate, I tried to communicate that I, um, I surrendered and I loved him. And he took his hands like this and he shook his he shook his hands like this. And then the car drove off and I just stood there for a long time crying. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was like in that moment, you know, these he was coming for me, he was coming for me, coming for me. Now he's got me. And he grabbed me very, very tight with that look. With that vision that he gave me that he opened up so beautiful 
Wow, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so I guess I'm gonna ask you, um, after coming and being a very young devotee, um, I know there were a lot of challenges in your life and um, it would probably take a week of 24 hour seven, <laughs> just be, you know, just uh, to, to, to hear all of the, the challenges you've been through, but maybe to pick the most prominent challenges or the ones that, yeah, that you would like to share um, as the part of the Sadaka's journey of having to go through challenges to upgrade their devotion. Yeah, um, you know, it's almost like which lifetime do you want to talk about? Because it feels like, yeah. it feels like many lifetimes that in this life has been, and you know, because you've been, you've been on the journey with me <laughs> since 1980. Yeah, a long time. So, yeah. Um, and you know what, what it's, but it's, it, it does really feel as though it's been numerous lifetimes that have been lived and each one has had a kind of death and then a slow birth into the next one and um, each one has brought um, yeah powerful lessons in in dissolving the ego and really uh going through the anarta nivriti which is seems to be a very long painful process um one we can't avoid but one that is not easy and it seems like it goes on and on for a long time um yeah i would say that um yeah so which one is the most it's, you know, in one way, I could say one is more, um, more impactful than another. But honestly, these tests have built on each other. And they have all been like acid tests, like each one going through like a living hell. Um, from relational issues to being abused by authorities in ISKCON, to um, being dismissed because of having a woman's body and not being allowed to do the services. I mean, it sounded like I did a lot of services from that bio, but I was prohibited from doing a lot of services that I would, would have liked to do and, and offered as a seva. So, um, and then, you know, raising a child that chose a different path and was in really severe difficulty, um, really crisis, you know, so, it, it, so which crisis was more profound? They were all difficult and um, they were all, they all had a very specific purpose. And um, I will say that we have a few minutes. So what I will say is that the, the one that was the biggest test 
um, in my estimation, brought me to the point where I was ready to um, re-look at my commitment to, to Krishna consciousness, to bhakti. And I thought maybe I made a mistake when I was 16 and I was very angry. I became very angry at Krishna. I became very doubtful of Prabhupada about some of the choices that he had made in uh, guiding ISKCON. And um, I was in a very, very dark place. So, and this went on for some time, some years. Um, I held on to the chanting, but barely. And the chanting, I wouldn't say was all that um, attentive, but I felt like until I had made a decision that for sure I was leaving Krishna consciousness, I shouldn't give up the chanting because I felt like that would be a way to clarify. Um, so there you, there, so you see some, some faith still remained, but the faith was very deeply shaken. And I, so I, what I did is I went back to studying a lot of the different paths. And I went back and uh, looked at a lot of different books and like, where, where would I go if I was giving up the path of bhakti? Mm. And I went through this intellectual exercise where I said, well, okay, there's atheism, but that just didn't ring for me. And then there's a not agnosticism. And that also wasn't, um, I, I just couldn't intellectually support either one of those positions. And so then I was thinking of, you know, Buddhism and impersonalism and, you know, get away from a personal God, you know, <laughs> maybe it'll be a little easier. <laughs> He's a little heavy on you. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I looked at, at impersonalism, but, you know, when you think about it, it's, 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 uh, it's not a very rich worldview and um, offering that, you know, I just felt it was part, it's only partial. Once you're exposed to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, then you see how these other paths are, represent just a portion of the absolute truth. So that wasn't working. Then I was looking at the Christian mystics and um, the, uh, the Sufis and, you know, the mystics and the different tradition. But I, I came back to, you know, all of there, there's threads of bhakti here, but the fact is, is that they are, um, that Gaudiya Vaishnavism has this wealth of information. And when you come down to it, what is it saying? It's saying God is a lover, God is joyful, God is a youth. And I'm like, you know, that's a really um, beautiful, but seems reasonable perspective on the absolute that why would well, he would be youthful he would be happy he would be loving and so i just was like okay you know i can't quite cut the cord with bhakti but it's not a blue god and i don't believe in krishna <laughs> so i had this real like standoffish 
and I even would say, I'm not making one more step toward you <laughs> until you make a step toward me. And just this deep crisis of faith that was very unbecoming and um, unfortunate. And then I had a, an experience <clears throat> one day that spoke more toward the heart and I was in my, my uh, temple room and I had just placed many fragrant flowers. It was spring and I'd placed many fragrant flowers around the altar and um, it, they smelled very beautiful. And I was cleaning the room and I felt like it was a wholesome atmosphere and, and cleaning felt good to me. And all of a sudden, all the memories of the moments of my seva or chanting that had transported me flooded me like almost threw me on the ground with so much power the moment that Prabhupada looked at me in the eye what happened in that moment my experience of sitting with him in the temple room my experience of being on book distribution and transcending the body so completely that I never wanted to come back into the body because you were just a member of Lord Chaitanya's Sankirtan party and you had you had left the planet earth and the time that I sat down with my japa beads and in, and had a very deep experience of being a spiritual soul, not the body. All these moments that were so profound, they just flooded me. And I just went, oh my God, I, I can't deny this. And the books, the way they came to me and how they called to me in that store and how they followed me around the world and how Prabhupada saved me and the services that I did and the association that I had and all, I just, I, it became no longer an intellectual exercise. It was grounding back into, I experienced this, this is real, and I am not going to deny this real experience. And so that was a transformative moment where I just said, okay, um, take, take back up. And I still had a standoffish attitude for a few years. And um, I went through another couple of crises after that main one, which had set me into that really dark place. Um, and I had to deal with those crises. They were, they were all, they were consuming crises, helping other people live through um, attempted suicide and harming each other. And then getting my granddaughter when she was two years old and get, raising her for some years. It was extremely, um, taxing. And uh, I knew at that time that I was trying to make my way to hear from uh, Tripurari Swami. I had spoken with you a few times and I had said, you know, do you think that I could have a conversation with Maharaj? Because I remember him from book distribution days. And I mean, he was a prominent member. He was an upstanding person that was highly regarded all over the movement, all over the world. And um, ISKCON no longer was working for me. My faith had been too decimated. I didn't have a place. I, 
I lost a lot through the tests. And um, that was one of the tests was to individuate away from the institution where my whole identity was part of an institution. And I realized that's not bhakti. And I have to come to bhakti on my, on my own. Anyway, so I, I wanted to make that journey to um, hear from Tripurari Maharaj and um, visit you. And finally, finally, after five years of a very awful situation, I was able to do that in 2013 and had um, just another, another like aha moment where I sat there and I was like, oh my God, I didn't, you know, now we're running out of time, but um, part of the journey was I had written, I had had this idea of a preaching program called the Bhakti Campaign. And I presented it to the BBT trustees in 2002. And it was a marketing idea where we would um, get devotees to write books for an outside audience that would be relevant and relatable to because I felt so strongly Prabhupada impressed on us, preach to your American brothers and sisters. And the institution had been serving to a large degree Indian body people who uh, have an obvious connection to Krishna consciousness and come very easily. But Prabhupada wanted us to preach to our brothers, your Westerners, so I was, I felt like we were lacking in that and that we had missed the boat, so to speak, like ISKCON had practically made vegetarianism popular in North America, but we've never been credited for that, for the beautiful Sunday feasts that Prabhupada started and the food for life programs and how we brought that into the awareness of the American public in a really big way. So I felt we should not lose that opportunity with the term bhakti. I wanted to make that a household word that people would know defined according to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And so the bhakti campaign was to find authors to write books, put them on a speaking circuit along with kirtan. Now this was before bhakti and kirtan entered the yoga asan community. This was before that happened. And when I presented that to the trustees, they were like, wow, yes, let's do this. And so I said, I need half a million dollars and um, I'll do it. And they immediately formed a division of the of BBT. And I, I was the co-manager of that with um, another devotee for five years. But the funds were not forthcoming and the, the co-manager wanted to do many other things. They wanted to raise funds. They wanted to develop an editorial department to encourage writers. They wanted to raise friends. They wanted to do all these things that we had to do the groundwork first before we got to the Bhakti campaign. And after five years, I just said, okay, this isn't happening. And we had, we had actually looked quite extensively within the devotee community in ISKCON for writers. And for one reason or another, we weren't finding them. So I resigned in 2007 from that initiative. And I felt like really the BBT was my last hope. I felt like I didn't have a place in ISKCON. BBT was my last hope for a place. And uh, it was finished. It wasn't. So I really felt like, you know, 
uh, where's my seva? And that's when the little voice came and said, write. And I went, oh no, I don't know how to write. No, I'm not writing. That's not gonna work for me. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I went on this long journey of trying to learn to write because this voice would not give up. It was not stopping and I was trying to push it away and it wouldn't go away. So, um, but I, I was having a hard time coming up with the angle to present Krishna consciousness, the angle to present bhakti that would be um, breaking through dogma and the strict rules that were, I felt so, and the sectarianism that I had felt and I had been come very burdened with. And I had been working through removing all the iskhanisms out of my vocabulary. And I was trying to find words, like I was coming up with the phrase conscious heart. And then I was talking about the feminine divine and I was blogging, but it wasn't coming together. It wasn't gelling. It was like I was blocked. And I remember telling girlfriends, I don't have the vocabulary. I can't write. And my writing mentor is, is a Buddhist and she can't quite get what, what we're talking about in bhakti, you know, and the depth of it and the gems and the beauty and how am I going to do this? And so I sat down in that class with Swami Tripurari and I was like, oh my God, there it is. I've been looking for this for like, like 15 years. And I could not believe how he moved me. I was not expecting, I wasn't <laughs> going up there thinking, okay, I'm going to be like a follower of Tripurari Swami. And this is going to be, I mean, I was look, I was hurting. So I needed some good association, but I wasn't thinking. In fact, I was very guarded given all yes. my experiences. You know, I was like, you know, we're not, this is a, not a necessarily, this is not necessarily we're going anywhere here. <laughs> I'm just checking coming, things out. Just, just coming for a little visit. <laughs> well, I'm just coming for a visit. And the first class, I was like, oh my God, Krishna. <laughs> and um, I went up to him and I said, Maharaj, you know, uh, could you write a book for an outside audience? You're, it's just so powerful the way you speak. And how you relate, you relay in such freshness, bhakti, and the path, and the theology, and the philosophy. And he said, "No, I my my service is to serve the practicing devotees, and um, those who hear from me should write." But I heard that, and I thought, you know, I I I really can't write. But he said that at the time. And then um, uh, I, I was going to then, I, well, I had an idea, well, I'll take his work and put it into a book because his work is so beautiful. And so I started transcribing his contemporary talks and um, I spoke with him about that and he, was, he encouraged me. And um, uh, so I was going to gather the essays together and put them together. But when I started writing them, uh, putting them together, I felt that there were holes and I needed to fill in the holes. I don't know, I had this idea. And uh, anyway, um, that initial project didn't come out. And then Wise Love came out as a, um, based very strongly on his contemporary talks, but writing in my own voice and um, 
not, uh, you know, my idea was just to transcribe and then edit and print those, but I wound up not able to do that. I, I wrote from scratch, but drawing heavily from his, his teachings and the way he spoke about it. And so that's how Wise Love came out. Um, and I feel very, um, I feel very indebted to Swami Tripurari. I feel very, my life is very enriched. I feel like the, the, the acid tests that I went to, through were preparing me to be able to really take advantage of his association so that I could be elevated further in my, my progress. And I feel that that has occurred in a significant way. Yeah, so <clears throat> being able to hindsight, you know, see where you've come and, and then see all those really difficult, challenging, dark nights of the soul and seeing how they always, and every devotee who has done this can see if they get far enough along, you know, and forward, how all those things serve to bring them to a higher level and really deepen their their commitment to bhakti and their practices and so i've certainly seen that in you um just the trend i mean your practice how deep you've gone in your practice in the last years and then these books that are coming out and your ability krishna's empowered you in such an amazing way to write those bridge books that you dreamt about other devotees writing and Krishna had you on his agenda to be the author. <laughs> and, I had and, no clue. No, you I had, had no, no clue. And so all the, those times that, you know, he made things difficult, it was to prepare you for this and, and your, your deepening sadhana. And yeah, it's, it's really been, for me, a real honor and privilege to know you. Oh, and, and seriously, because I'm, I, I'm just, I feel like I, I don't, I don't push myself so much, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm, I get ideas and I start things, but I'm not great always at the follow through. And so I'd actually have a friend that, <laughs> takes things from point A to point Z and just can push through all kinds of obstacles. I mean, it's really, it's, it's very inspiring. I don't have that nature. And so I'm, I'm not going to be, that's not going to be my contribution in this lifetime, but to see someone that has that and just how much you've helped, you have helped so many people in a big way and on a very, um, micro i'm a macro level i'm more micro i do helping on a micro level and you do it well on one thing just to put things into perspective because that bio was very long and you're now trying to glorify me a little over the top here so i'm gonna say one thing is that um you know we have our strengths and we have our weaknesses and oftentimes our strengths are also our greatest weaknesses and so um, I'll, this, th I'll tell you this funny story. I've told you this before, Archana, but I'll share it with others. You know, my, my mother said that when I was born, 
I was, the doctor held me up and I was, my head was completely straight and my eyes were completely open and I was clearing my throat and looking around. <laughs> I was standing, they didn't have to clear my throat. I was clearing my throat myself as I was born. And I was standing at four months. I was walking at eight months and people would think that it was like a wind up doll because I was so short and thin because I was only a few pounds, but I was walking with little curly hair and they thought it was like a, a toy doll because I was so small walking. And then I trained myself to, I potty trained myself at 10 months because I wanted to wear the little white lace panties. So at 10 months old, I wanted to wear lace panties. <laughs> and, and so I potty trained myself. So, I mean, you know, this, this is like some karmic thing coming from the past. And it's also been my greatest nemesis where, you know, I'm pushing through when I need to pull back and listen and slow down and go deep instead of doing because I felt like I had to accomplish. I had, it meant so much to me in terms of psychologically my self-worth, but I had to, I had to give back to Prabhupada. I had given, been given so much and I, and I still, I still feel that way. Anyway, so um, as much as it's been good, it looks good because then you can do a lot of external services. It's, there's problems there's with problems it. And so it, sure. um, just to keep it into perspective, I thought to share that. And it yes. seems like few people have questions. Maybe we should not talk anymore and take questions. Yeah, let's, let's take the questions. Um, well, one of the questions, Sakirati, you already, I think you already answered her question. Please share with us how you experience your experience when you met Guru Maharaj and connected to him. So you have addressed that. Um, Krishna Kumari said, thank you for sharing your amazing journey. I think my question is similar to Ananda Manjari Dasi. Oh, so she, oh, I didn't see her question. Okay. How has your practice grown and changed since your association with Sri Chaitanya Sangha? How have you harmonized your ISKCON experience to where you are now? Hope this makes sense. So um, I have always been um, a person that is very self-reflective and seeking honesty and living honesty. So that brings in a degree of um, internal aspect to one sadhana that's very powerful. And um, Swami, hearing from Swami and receiving his guidance and his association has set that, like set that into deep waters, that, um, tendency and shown me practical ways to well it's even more than practical ways I mean he, he he gives practical ways but his company has um lifted me 
in, in, a, in it lifted me spiritually. It's like someone who's more advanced than you can, can do that. And he has done that. And um, as that has happened and continues to happen, my sadhana goes deeper and deeper and I'm, I'm reaching experiences in my sadhana that I've never had before. And I attribute that to um, his association. And how I have um, harmonized my experience with ISKCON, um, you know, that was my, that's where I was born and raised. <laughs> you know, Prabhupada saved me. And I was able to serve his, his, his preaching mission. As Swami said, Prabhupada had us in this position of you just whatever we're told to do, we would just do. And that, that experience was very profound in the formation of who I am and the experience of being in an ashram and just being willing to do whatever, whenever, at any moment, this changes, that changes. And then developing um, lifelong friendships. I mean, we've known each other for 30, 37 years, more than that. Something almost 40 years. Yeah. Over 40 years. Yeah, over 40 years. So, I mean, and, uh, and, and you're my closest friend. I mean, that, was, that happened in ISKCON, <laughs> you know. Um, so I feel privileged and honored to be able to have rendered service in that pioneer movement of bringing Krishna consciousness to the West. I feel grateful. It's not too hard to harmonize. No. I mean, I see, I see the, I see what I, it was for a while. I was very heartbroken. I mean, absolutely devastated with what has gone on in ISKCON and um, where I think it's gone off and the problems. And then at the same time, I see it's really helping a lot of people still. So um, it's mixed and I am no longer, I, I, I feel a little distant, but I still, my friends are still members, you know, active members of ISKCON. My husband is the manage, manager of Back to Godhead magazine and has been for 37 years. And um, he's very, you know, very much an ISKCON, a, a prominent ISKCON member. And um, I, I just have no problem being in both worlds. I'm looking forward to seeing the sectarianism and the bigotry and the sexism of ISKCON ending so that um, the Sanghas can come together for spreading bhakti in a, in a deeper way because through the association of people at Sri Chaitanya Sangha, I've come to see the whole Gaudiya Vaishnava world you know, which is quite broad beyond ISKCON, and I was vaguely aware of it, and now I am more intimately aware of it, and the sincerity of these devotees, and the, the, the love, and the spirit of people in ISKCON, and quote, outside of ISKCON, is, is just tremendous, so I'm, I'm 
I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but I'm so looking forward to the possibility of cooperation and um, some of maturity growing in some of the members of ISKCON. Mm. Thank you, very beautiful, comprehensive answer. Omkar has a question. Haribo Pranad, thank you for sharing your beautiful uh, journey. Hare Krishna. Um, We're gonna see uh, you question. in North Carolina, I heard. Yeah, yeah, soon, in okay. a little over a couple of weeks. <laughs> okay, looking forward to meeting you there. Likewise. Uh, my question is in regards of your, thank you for that like intimate share of your experiences with Srila Prabhupada and how it transformed your life and those experiences. And um, that type of experience, um, I guess is um, you shared it so nicely and fluently and, and sort of uh, in a manner that it's, it's, it's very inspiring to me and, um, and I'm sure for others as well. Um, but I'm wondering that having had such an experience with Srila Prabhupada that would be really such a confirmation of and faith building uh, experience, um, would that be something that you at an ongoing base sort of uh, reinvent your sadhana um, around or is it is it how would that affect your do you have to kind of go back to it or is it something that transformed you in a way that I don't know if it's too private don't feel pressure of sharing but no. some words maybe. yeah um, I think I understand what you're saying I um, you know like that I explained that that moment that Prabhupada looked me in the eye was it, it saved my it saved my spiritual life when I went through like really serious crisis. So um, it so it was there and it and it always it always kind of like held me and then it it saved me. But um, you know, spiritual life is not static; it is dynamic. And um, so many people had that association with Prabhupada and then left him. They so it's it's not just that you you had that association and then you're going to be carried you it's up to us to invest ourselves and it's on a daily basis that's my experience it's not it's not just this week or this month but on a moment it's and it's becoming more profound for me this moment to moment um moving into meditation and understanding my insignificance, my, my dependence, my intensifying desire to be of service, to one day directly serve the Prince of Raja and the, the daughter of Vrishabhanu Raj. And it's, it's just, it's ongoing. I mean, what, and that's what Swami talks about. It's an eternal becoming. So that's my experience is that it's, it's not only, um, yeah, it's just, it's becoming more and more, not less and less, more and more is asked of me and more and more is, is, is given. And, and through the association of devotees, I'm, I'm, I'm shown, I keep, I'm, I'm kept in check and balances and Tell me if that answers what you were looking for. Is that 
address yeah, it? Yeah, well, thank you. That was uh, far more than I was expecting that, that mm -hmm. you'd say. I wasn't expecting anything, but thank you. That was wonderful, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I, I relate with that, that we have to still put the effort no matter what we experience. Um, I think that's, that's a really, really beautiful point. And I mean, your experience says everything, right? So, yeah, yeah, thank you. yeah we can't, it's, it's, ne it's never going to be that we just rest at a certain point. I mean, it's kind of, it's like, sorry, guys, but we're not going to just rest and relax here. This is, this is a full on commitment and it, and it takes every ounce of everything we've got to come to the point of giving our very self and with love. Um, and it's, it's just incredibly beautiful, but also asking everything. And if you, if you, you know, if you slide along for a little while, you're just going to have to make up time, lost time. And the, 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 the more I'm practicing and the, the longer I just, like, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, I pay obeisances to Prabhupada in the morning and I just, I, I go back to that, that experience as a child feeling I could miss my opportunity in this life for the absolute truth. I can't begin to explain to you what an existential crisis those uh, eight years were until I found read Prabhupada's books. It was very, um, it was a very deep samskara, let's put it that way. And so that samskara stays with me. And I think I've, I've got to be serious. I can't lose this opportunity. Like the, you know, he probably came to San Francisco when that prayer started. And I feel like I only saw Prabhupada one time. And I feel like my trajectory just barely touched his. And then he was off. And I've been here without him for all this time. And then I I it, it took decades to be to be moved in a, in a similar way through hearing from Tripurari Swami. And it's like, this is so rare and it's so precious. And how do I not, I don't want to miss any chance here on a daily basis. And I, it just brings me to tears every morning when I pay obeisances, like how this is so urgent. This is just so urgent. Wow. How valuable. Well, how valuable. That's uh, something to aspire for. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Nice to Hare. meet you. Hare Krishna. Right. So, Pranada, there's one more question in the chat from Ram Mohan. You want to um, ask your question? Pranams, um, Pranada, Harry Bo. Um, Thank you for, I, I'm sorry, I only got, I missed the first half of the interview. So I apologize if my question was covered with, uh, during that time. Um, I'm curious about your name. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. It's uh, uh, partly because I'm half French and uh, it's French sounding, so. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were asking me about Pranada because there's well, a both. story about I Pranada. <laughs> I'd like to know both. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Nagaraj, Nagaraj Prabhu, my husband, is French-Canadian, and that's how it's Comtois. And, uh, but when I received the name Pranada, um, all the women at the fire sacrifice that I was in received the name of the Ganges. So... Vegavati, Gangagati, um, Janeshwari, 
And I had, you know, I really wanted to have a name of Radharani because, you know, you want to, that's what women want to do. They want to have a name for Radharani. And they said, Prada. And I went, oh my God, that's awful. <laughs> I hated that name. And I went up, I went up and I looked, you know, they had the names posted on the Prasadam room door. And I looked at my name and I was like, oh my God, I really hate that. And I would hear people say that name. And I was just like, oh, that's really a gross name. Uh, anyway, it took me some years to get used to it. it like a lot of years, like maybe 25 years. <laughs> Prabhupada had named two disciples, Pranada, myself and a man. And I thought it was like a man's name. I was like, why did they give me this name, Pranada? And then in the last 10 years, um, prana means life air and da means one who gives so it means the servant of one who gives life air and in the last 10 years it's an i've heard now it's a name for Srimati radharani who gives life air to krishna it's a name for chaitanya mahaprabhu who gives life air to the jivas it's a name for krishna who gives us life air i was like wow <laughs> What a far out name. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. And um, I didn't know you didn't like your name for all that time. I had, that's a new, I had a hard an, time. a new insight for me. And that you've come to understand it in a deep, beautiful way in the last few years, last 10 years. So... I think on that on that note, we have um, Omkar put amazing in the chat. So um, I think we'll maybe you could just give just as a closing remark anything that the most valuable thing that you've learned in your forty-seven year journey as a sadhaka that you would. If, something value, just a gift in, in like a few short sentences. I think that the greatest gift is the holy name and holding firm to that holy name through anything is an, the most important conversation we will have in our life. It is putting us in the position of being guided directly by Krishna and he um, does guide he does answer. He has saved me numerous occasions. And I feel that really um, it was through the holy name directly that those, the relationship has developed and is possible. And I, I feel just overwhelmingly grateful for Krishna's holy name. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Pranadai. And I apologize to everyone for not telling you who the, the interviewee was going to be this week. <laughs> we had to keep that. I had to keep it a secret until this morning when I asked Pranada to do it so that she would be able to do it without overthinking it and getting an anxiety about it. So uh, too much anxiety. I can't speak in public. So um, it worked out and I'm so happy, but I do apologize for not, you know, usually we, we send out some notices about the call and we weren't able to do that this week. So 
anyway, the, we've got the, this beautiful interview up on Sri Chaitanya Sangha for however long this technology <laughs> is still available. Um, yeah, just very grateful. I think you, you what you shared today will really inspire a lot of devotees and, and give a lot of hope to know that you can go through the, you know, some really, really dark, really hard crises. And, and, and if, you know, Krishna will, will help you through it. And um, thank you. And we look forward to your, all your other books that are coming out. And, um, and hopefully the memoir will talk more about that. <laughs> we'll see if I have the courage to do the memoir. <laughs> all right, my dear devotees, in the next month, we will not be doing the interviews. Um, the special, there'll be special classes all throughout March for um, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Um, so we'll resume those, our interviews in April. So thank everybody for your participation and your support. And it's wonderful when you come on. It's so nice to have some people to, to actually look at what we're doing the interview. Jai, Haribo. Haribo. Hare Krishna.